It is so good to be with you this morning. And um, before we begin, I'll acknowledge that if you follow football at all, uh, I'm very aware that today is a big game day. And I don't know very much about football, but I have learned a few things. For instance, I am aware that there are two different styles of Kansas City fans. There are like the typical run-of-the-mill everyday Kansas City fans. And then there are the Matt Inman style Kansas City fans. And so if you are in that second category today, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you. We under I understand, I don't know much about it, but I understand you may be feeling a lot of feelings. And um, we're here for you. Whatever happens later today, we're here for you. So however you're feeling coming in today, uh, welcome. It just feels really great that we can start today off together, uh, being with one another, and perhaps appropriate for a game day, a rivalry day. Our text for this morning invites us into a conversation about conflict, about relational conflict. And so... Um, as a way to begin today, I'd like to invite you to notice with me what conflict feels like in our bodies. What does relational conflict feel like when we've wronged someone, when someone else has wronged us, when we're just sideways with one another? For, for many of us, for me included, it's one of the most painful human experiences that I know of. And uh, you may feel it, as I do, in acutely in a certain part of the body, like our chest, our gut, or our whole body just may feel disturbed. And I know this is not pleasant to think about. And also, Jesus' words for today are inviting us into a practice that may produce within us some relief around that stress and tension, some sense of embodied peace. And so if you can hang in there for this first part of the homily today, we're headed somewhere hopeful. That's what I wanted to let you know. Um, but to help us connect with what conflict feels like, I'd like to invite you to perhaps bring to mind someone in your life that you may be feeling some separation from. And while you're thinking about it, I'll share an example of a time that I felt this acutely uh, that comes to mind for me. So when I was 19, I lived in an apartment off of Speedway and 38th with my dear friend and roommate, Jamie. And in those days, Jamie waited tables at Carrava's Italian restaurant. And one afternoon while Jamie was at work, I brought another friend of mine home, Shannon, and I brought her back to our apartment Shannon was in her late 20s, and uh, she was unhoused, and I had met Shannon on the drag. She panhandled during the day, and at night, Shannon and her friends would find parks and green spaces near downtown to sleep in, and over the months, I had gotten to know Shannon, and this particular weekend, I had been spending some time with her, and I had noticed that her hair was just infested with lice and it was causing her a lot of discomfort. Her scalp was really itchy. There were sores that were developing and I had found a delicate way to ask Shannon, would you like some help with the lice situation? And she got tearful and she said yes. 
And so here's the part of the story where I confess something to you. I could have called Jamie at the restaurant she was working at and run this plan by her and let her know what I was thinking to do and asked her input. Um, that would have been the considerate thing to do. I, I, did, I did none of that. I, I brought Shannon back to the apartment while Jamie was working. I lent Shannon my bathing suit. She got in our bathtub and then we proceeded to try to comb out the lice, which I, I thought was gonna take maybe an hour. I quickly turned out to, I was in way over my head. And so hours went by and many trips to CVS to get more lice treatment. And after finally realizing that there was no way to comb through everything, Shannon was sobbing and she finally just said, cut all my hair off, just cut it all off. And so we did and cutting her long, brown hair, very, very short, finally combed it all out. And at the end of the day, she was feeling much better and her scalp was feeling clean. And that's the moment where Jamie got home from work. And she po poked her head in the bathroom and she saw the hair and the state of the tub and the boxes of lice treatment. And I could tell from Jamie's expression in that moment, we were now going to be in roommate hell. <laughs> So this <laughs> brings us to the big question we're invited into this morning. How do we move out of relational hell into reconciliation? Because in my story, Jamie was right to be angry and feel insulted and not considered. And her whole drive home, for after a grueling day of waiting tables, all she had wanted to do was take a hot bath in her own bathtub. And she had walked into what seemed to her like a nightmare and I needed to take responsibility for my part in that and how it felt for her. And I wasn't at all sure how to go about that conversation. So let's begin to wonder together, what does reconciliation look like in practice? And how do we find a way out of relational hell and into relational peace after we've wronged one another? This, this is the big question we're invited into today. So our text opens with Jesus saying this. You have heard that it was said of those, to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Uh, so we're talking today about all forms of relational conflict, and murder is obviously an extreme form of that. Uh, Jesus invites us to start there, I think, because murder is a place where most humans can find common ground. Murder the violent ending of the life of another is to be prevented at all costs. It's, it tosses us into relational hell. And so let's start here and just notice what Jesus is saying about this. He says, whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And this word liable in Greek, it holds this sense of being involved with or ensnared by or entangled by something. So whoever murders shall be ensnared by judgment. This word judgment in Greek holds the sense of being separated, like separating one thing from another. So whoever murders someone is ensnared by separation, trapped in the relational hell of being permanently 
separated from the humanity of the person whose life they ended or the person whose body they violated. Last month on January 7th, when Memphis police officers murdered Tyree Nichols, they separated themselves from his humanity. They separated themselves from Tyree's unique and unrepeatable human life and body. They separated themselves from his beauty and his talent and his value as a human sibling. They separated him from his son Milo and his mother Rovan. They separated Tyree's loved ones from his joy and his hugs and his presence at family gatherings and from his smile and his laugh and his voice saying Merry Christmases and Happy Birthdays and I love yous. And the pain we feel over the murder of Tyree Nichols, it's hellacious. Just as the pain that we feel over the murders of so many others, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Breonna Taylor, Philandra Castile, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Arle Alton Sterling, Stefan Clark, Botham Jean, George Floyd, Eric Garner, Andre Hill, Trayvon Martin, Dante Wright, tragically so many others whose names are either known or have been intentionally covered up. When one member of our community suffers, we all suffer. And it's because we're not separate from each other. That's the mystery and the reality of our shared humanity. When one member hurts, the whole body hurts. For as it is, there are many parts but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. And yet let's just notice that relational conflict is like a virus, which would have us feel as if we were separate, as if we don't need each other, as if we are hopelessly divided with no possibility of equal concern for one another. And Jesus invites us to say, no, as far as it depends on me, I will be reconciled to my human siblings. So friends, who are we currently feeling separated from? As you bring to mind perhaps someone in your life, perhaps just say their name silently to yourself and notice how that feels in our bodies and let's become curious when we're feeling that way separated because of conflict what might a practice then of reconciliation look like in action uh, Jesus goes on to say this but I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister or sibling you will be liable to judgment and if you insult a sibling you will be liable to the council and if you say you fool you will be liable to the hell of fire So the first thing we might notice about this second part of our passage is whereas murder is a form of relational separation that takes place externally, Jesus is inviting us to notice there's a 
parallel form of relational separation that's taking place internally. And this occurs often long before we ever arrive at a moment of external violence. There's anger simmering on the inside, or insults bouncing around, or humiliating messages that we may have said to somebody or somebody may have said to us. And Jesus is inviting us to notice when we're feeling that way towards someone or someone else is feeling that way toward us, we're both in danger of falling into relational hell. And the fact that conflict feels hellacious to us is in part because of the way the brain is wired. We're wired for relational connection. And brain scans have revealed that social pain, relational pain, it travels along some of the same neural pathways as physical pain. And those researchers like to say, sticks and stones may break my bones and words can also hurt me. And as far as our brains are concerned, relational pain and physical pain may be indistinguishable in terms of the neural activity. So here at Vox, Two of our community values, participation and empathy, both signal our deep desire to be a place of spiritual and relational connection for one another. And at the same time, we will sometimes experience conflict. And so we will need practices to help one another find comfort and relief and peace when that happens inside us, if not between us. So in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to listen to two of our Vox community members who will help us think about what reconciliation can look like in practice. But right now, if you would just bring back to mind, again, perhaps the person or persons you think of when you consider someone you may currently be feeling separated from, perhaps due to anger or insult or humiliation. And particularly, you might consider someone who you're feeling separated from because they are angry with you or feeling insulted by you, as Jamie, my roommate, was in the story earlier with me. And if you have someone in mind that you're thinking of, you might begin to wonder how might you imagine going and talking with them about your role in the separation? What would be the factors you'd be weighing and thinking about if and when and how and what words to use? And hold those questions in mind as we look at how Jesus wraps up by saying this. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister or sibling has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your sibling and then come and offer your gift. So here is the moment where reconciliation first begins. It's when we remember. When we remember that someone has something against us. Not that we have something against someone, but that someone has something against us. And when we remember, we're reminded of that person, go. Leave whatever you're doing with a sense of urgency. Leave your gift at the altar. Go to that person and take responsibility for your part in the separation between you. 
this is a practice of taking initiative, taking responsibility. And be reconciled. Talk about your awareness of your part and how they might be feeling, empathizing with the anger, the insult, the humiliation, the inner relational hell that our words and actions may have produced inside the other person. So this word reconciled, it holds the sense of being changed on the inside of us being changed through the process of going to the person and taking responsibility. A change in us on the inside. And I'd like to close by inviting you to listen to a couple of our Vox community members reflecting on what a practice of making amends can look like in action and what kind of change it can produce on the inside of us. So Joe Arinella is one of our community members. He's really experienced in helping folks in recovery make meaningful amends through the 12 steps. And I asked Joe, how do you think about this process of making amends and the change it can produce in us on the inside? So here's what Joe said. Hey, Jenna, thanks for letting me share on this topic of amends. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the 12 steps of recovery, making amends is step eight, and it's to make a list of all persons we have, we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all, which I know that sounds a little scary because some of us might have big lists like I did, for example. And a lot of times, you know, we carry this pain in our in our lives because of the things that have happened to us. And then oftentimes we respond to that by whether it's, um, you know, being hurtful to others, or maybe it's um, in, indirectly, we struggle with addiction as a way of coping. And then our behavior and addiction is harmful to others. But in any case, part of recovery is looking at those things that have been harmful to others and be willing and that's the first step because that shows a deep change in your own heart to, to admit that this certain behavior wasn't that person's fault. And it could be a direct result of something that happened to you and that's how you were coping. But nonetheless, it still left some wreckage. So having a willingness to go and, and meet with a person, and it could be as simple as just saying you're sorry. You know, maybe that something you did was hurtful and you're admitting it. And that would be very healing. It could be something bigger than that. It could be having to make financial restitution. But in any case, it begins to change your own heart and it releases you to be way more empathetic. And, and first of all, you know, with yourself, right? I mean, you're releasing all that shame and that guilt and, you know, you're becoming a much, um, a much wholer person. And then from there, you know, understanding that certain behaviors are hurtful to others, it makes you more sensitive to that and more loving and more empathetic. So take the time to make a list. And as painful as it is, you know, go back and do some restorative work and watch what happens to your own heart. It's a beautiful thing. So anyway, um, don't be scared. Just go do it. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Uh, one of the things that stayed with me from talking with Joe was what he said at the end there, don't be scared. <laughs> and in the scriptures, when somebody would say, don't be afraid, it's usually because you have a lot of good reason to be afraid. 
But the comfort that I hear Joe offering is this, that what we'll feel on the other side of that process is freedom and peace and relief from shame and guilt and the freedom to more fully be who we are and to own every part of ourselves and our stories and our relationships. And so as you're continuing to think with me about this, um, I'd like you to hear from one more of our Vox community members, Amy Wolfgang is experienced in helping folks make amends through a restorative justice process. And I asked Amy to talk with me about why amends is also an effective form of justice. And so here's what Amy had to say. Hi, Vox. Jenna asked me to talk a little bit about the power of amends in restorative justice and restorative processes. And the first thing I'll say is that it is very different to a lot of processes that we have in the kind of modern colonized West um, in that it centers the needs of the person who was harmed. So right off the bat, they have the opportunity to actively participate in their own healing and in the ways that um, their harm is repaired, uh, which is quite different. So if you took nonviolent communication, you know that people can have the same experience, um, but different needs and emotions will arise from the, that same experience. And so the process treats each harmed person or group of people as having their own unique needs. Um, and it also treats a lot of those needs as relational, right? We know that um, harm is, is a relational issue. It's a relational break, right? Um, the other thing that is powerful about a restorative process is that if the person who committed the harm is willing to take accountability, there is an active process for them to, to do that. Um, and we always say, you know, involved to the extent possible, right? Because the harmed person may not need that or want that. Um, and if that's not something they need, there are other avenues to meet their needs through a restorative process, right? It just doesn't have to be sitting across from the person who's harmed you. Uh, and so in that way, I think it allows some creativity to happen in the amends process. Um, and it acknowledges the humanity in both the person who was harmed and the person who committed the harm. It, it doesn't reduce anyone to an offender and a victim. Um, it acknowledges the humanity in, in all of those people and, and in the process in general. So I hope that helps. And it was so good to talk to you. So Amy is helping us uh, to notice that amends making doesn't always require a person-to-person -person conversation, especially if uh, there's reason to think that to do so would produce further harm. And when that's the case, both in recovery work and in restorative justice, there's this alternative idea of making a living amends. As Amy mentioned, uh, that can look like financial reparations or a practice of orienting one's life around the values and daily practices that reflect the inner change that's happened on the inside of us. Uh, so then we're committing to treat others differently going forward. We're making amends through our daily words and actions and patterns of relating to others. So friends, as we 
wrap up, I'd like to invite us to consider what would it look like for Vox to become known as a community where we are practicing exquisitely making amends and being reconciled to one another and also making amends to communities who have historically been wronged. And this week, as we might remember and notice uh, people in our lives with whom we're experiencing conflict coming back and surfacing in our memory, let's become curious if we were to go to them and initiate a conversation about our part in that separation, if we were to ask someone to help us make living amends and to uh, address places where we have wronged someone, what change might occur on the inside of us? That day that I failed to be considerate of my friend and roommate, Jamie, we fell into relational hell with each other. Things were very icy in our apartment for quite a while after that. And I really had struggled to know how to bring up the conversation. It was one of the most painful friendship and roommate experiences I've ever had. And when I'm feeling separated from someone because of conflict, my whole body feels disturbed by it. I'm really happy to say that Jamie and I reconciled. I eventually found the words to take responsibility and empathize with how Jamie felt when she was so eager to take a bath when she came home and she arrived and uh, was just she was really distressed by what she saw. And I think she felt my empathy and care. And I felt a tremendous sense of relief and peace afterwards. So may we continue to help one another to name wrongs that have occurred, pay attention to the stress and tension we're feeling in our bodies that are signaling to us that something here requires our loving attention. And may we continue to help one another find creative and restorative ways of making amends for every wrong we remember. And let's be curious how practicing reconciliation together here at Vox might help equip us to better support others in our circles, our neighborhoods, and larger communities to move from relational hell and into reconciliation and embodied peace. Please pray with me. God of wisdom, show us the way out of relational conflict. And wherever possible, help us go and speak and own our part. And in doing so, may we be changed and come to know the peace and joy of being one body. In the name of God, who is a relationship, Christ, who shows us the way, and the Spirit, who is reconciling all things. Amen. Amen.